Welcome and thanks for joining us for the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry's Collaborative and Integrated Care podcast series. I'm your host, Saraj Sangupta. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist uh, in Buffalo, New York. And today, uh, we're really fortunate to be talking to Dr. Mike Franz, who's a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Bend, Oregon. Um, he wears many hats, including also as the medical director of behavioral health for Pacific Source, which is a health plan out in Oregon as well. Um, so um, we'll be talking with Dr. Franz about both his clinical integrated care program and, and another, another part of our conversation. Hopefully we'll have some time to talk to him uh, about some of his perspectives um, uh, in terms of working uh, directly within a health plan. Dr. Franz, welcome. Thanks, Sarah. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, appreciate the invitation today. Absolutely. Um, so could we uh, jump right into it? Could you tell us a little bit about your clinical integrated care program, a little bit about what it's like and how you got started? Sure. So um, I got started just over five years ago when I moved from Portland to Bend to start my job with Pacific Source and decided that I wanted to keep my clinical hat at least one day a week, so uh, allow myself Fridays to do clinical work. And in collaboration with the Director of Behavioral Health at Deschutes County Behavioral Health Services at the time, um, he and I thought about what would be the best way to leverage my limited availability for child psychiatric services, given that um, Deschutes County in Central Oregon, like a lot of Oregon and a lot of the country, has a real uh, low level of available psychiatric services, a scarcity of services. So sure. with that in mind, we, we both had a strong interest in integrated services and thought mm. it might be a great opportunity to try to start a collaborative care model program. So he was very generous and was able to secure some funds actually from the community mental health program to reimburse my time uh, and suggested that we go meet with the two largest pediatric uh, providers of primary care in the region, uh, COPA, which is Central Oregon Pediatric Associates and Mosaic Medical, which okay. together cover about 25 to 30,000 um, patients and okay. see if they would be interested in partnering with us uh, in regards to offering um, some child psychiatric collaboration to their teams. And that's that's how we got, guard, got, they got started. They were interested and we went from there. That's so exciting um, and so cool to see the collaboration with those community organizations and then tying that into your local big practices. Um, I think for a lot of child psychiatrists in different regions, the connection with the local practices is often a, a really critically important one. So, um, you know, walk me through a little bit, you know, what's the, the workflow like? Um, what kind of services do you provide in that integrated care setting? Sure. So, of course, um, you know, I started off really educating myself more about the collaborative care model, fidelity model from the AIM Center, University of Washington. Sure. And we, our, our intention was really to implement um, collaborative care from the very beginning. Um, it didn't quite work out that way, and I've heard from others <laughs> that it, it's it's been a challenge as well. Sure, uh, it's pretty have, typical, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we've had many iterations, and now over five years into it, I think we're we're pretty close in our in our hitting fidelity in some ways. But it really, it kind of started off as an e-consult um, model where um, it was pretty much a, a primary care directed referral, 
where I would sit in with the behavioral health consultant, so a licensed behavioral health provider who's already integrated into the clinics in a PCBH or primary care behavioral health model uh, gotcha. of integration. And um, so I would go on site to, to each office two hours uh, in the morning, one office, and then fortunately they were just a block away from each other, so I'd walk to the oh. other one for the other two hours. <laughs> That's easy, yeah. And um, the BHC would have up the um, EMR for the, the consults that we would do, and we'd be reviewing the EMR together, and I'd be uh, peppering the BHC with questions, and um, she would be responding uh, to those, and uh, I'd get the information, and I would um, do a very brief note, um, basically answering the consult. We were attempting mm. to get a registry up and going at that time. We knew we probably should develop some inclusion criteria, but it has really again taken several iterations over the years to get to the point where we now have functional registries in both clinics and we do have some inclusion criteria at least for one clinic the other clinics it's a little bit softer but one of the clinics we now have cutoff scores for um, PHQ-9s and GAD-7s, SCAREDs and Vanderbilts to help uh, guide who gets on the registry but due to popular demand by the the primary care providers, they really didn't want to give up the e-consults, which I understand. I think they really appreciate the ability to self-direct referrals sure. for my consultation. So we do have a hybrid model where we, we spend part of uh, the time doing the collaborative care review of the registry. And then any e-consults that come in that week, I also consult on. And the notes are, are pretty similar for both types of consultations. It's great. And what would you say, you know, in terms of the time that you spend, what, what's kind of the rough proportion on kind of the, um, the review of registry work, you know, maybe versus the e-consult work? You know, I think it's, it's probably about two-thirds collaborative care, one-third okay. e-consult. Mm-hmm. something like that mm-hmm. and you know, I've heard I've heard very impressive stories of some consulting psychiatrists in this model on the adult side who are able to do maybe 20 to 40 reviews in a two-hour period of time I'm, I'm nowhere near as efficient I think we <laughs> we generally get through five or ten per two-hour time frame at each clinic um, but still it feels like you know we're covering a lot I I think by and large we 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 are available to the entire panel, and if you know you're talking right. four hours of child psychiatry time for a panel of 25 to 30,000 kids, you know I think that's a it's been a valuable service. We've gotten that feedback from the community, and of course there are those, like in any collaborative care model, where I just say you know what this kiddo really needs to get into specialty psychiatry and he needs to have a face-to-face visit. And, and in my model, um, I've decided not to perform that, you know, one-time face-to-face evaluation just because my time is so limited. So okay. I have a very strict boundary. No matter how exciting the tick is in the room down uh-huh. the hall, I just do not go there. <laughs> okay. Okay. So in some ways, it's it's been helpful for you. You made that sort of strategic decision, but you have to kind of keep that strict line, you know, like we've made the decision. We can't actually break the line and go see the kid. Correct. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so uh, along those lines, it sounds like then, you know, this requires a really close collaboration and really a trusting relationship with your kind of behavior, in-house behavioral care managers, behavioral health managers. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you develop that relationship, how you kind of make that a good working relationship overall. 
Well, they really are the critical ingredient, and I, mm-hmm. I don't think that's unique to, to my uh, clinical work in this model. That's pretty much what I hear everywhere, is that whether it's a nurse care manager or a behavioral health professional functioning in that care management role and helping to manage the the registry and do the outreach for updating the psychometrics and mm-hmm. the coordination with the PCPs. It's, it, it is the linchpin of the entire model. So absolutely, I'm very fortunate to have two really wonderful um, behavioral health uh, consultants, Regina Joshi and uh, Lindsay Overstreet that I get to work with. And they've, um, they've just done a great job helping to champion the model. Um, you know, they spend a lot of time outside the time I'm there um, doing all those uh, uh, tasks that I just described, mm-hmm, uh, especially mm-hmm. getting those psychometrics updated and talking to families, um, you know, every week or two weeks so that we, uh, you know, uh, keep that, uh, avoid that clinical inertia that gets in the way of progress. I mean, that's the whole purpose of the model. So right. um, it takes a lot on their end. And sometimes, you know, families aren't that willing to engage. We have to get consent, of course, for them to get enrolled in the program. But sure. even then, sometimes uh, families realize, wow, this this is a lot of work. You're calling me every week and you have me filling mm-hmm. out all these forms. So mm-hmm. there's a bit of an art to it as well. And they do a great job with that. I think what we're finding, um, and again, I've heard this from other clinics, is you know, it it may not be the best use of their expertise to do some of these tasks. So we've been encouraging the clinics to look at perhaps um, resourcing other types of members of their team, perhaps medication assistants or clerical staff to do some of the work that doesn't require a licensed professional like like they are. it's you know it hasn't always been successful and a lot of it as i think we'll probably get to here in a minute has to do with sustainable reimbursement for the model to really convince the managers of the clinics and and the pcps that it's it's worth it to do that absolutely well if we could could we just riff on that um one of the i think the biggest kind of challenges for child psychiatrists across the country that are thinking about these programs or starting or working through these programs is kind of thinking through the financial sustainability. So could, could you tell us a bit about just sort of the general financial structure of the program and, and how you guys are, are trying to work towards or maintain, you know, sustainability? Sure. So, um, and th- this will start to blend in a little bit into my health plan role at Pacific Source. Of course, Source. of course. We're just one payer, but we can use that as an example. And we do happen to cover 40% of lives in Central Oregon through our um, three lines of business. So uh, what we do kind of matters to the clinics. And uh, one thing that, that we did right off the bat, I think it was maybe back in 2017 with, when the collaborative care um, uh, model codes came out by uh, CMS, we just opened those up across our lines of business. So from the very beginning, if there was fidelity to the model, which is you know really interesting, it's actually written into those codes that there has to be some fidelity to use them. Mm-hmm. Those are reimbursable, um, you know, certainly by Pacific Source and any other payer that that chooses to reimburse that. Of course, Medicare has to, but we right. have reimbursed that. Um, now that's great, and for clinics uh, that have employed the collaborative care program with great efficiency and success, I am now hearing that you can be financially sustainable just through those codes if you have enough hmm. um, productivity. They're time-based codes though, so there is there is a lot of time involved with the staff uh, to sure. generate that revenue. Um, yeah. I don't think we're at that level in my clinic based off the numbers I just gave you of how many patients 
we're seeing and, and the mm-hmm. time spent to 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 make them completely sustainable, but I think it's an important start. Interestingly, one of the clinics has chosen not to drop the codes yet, and I'm not exactly sure why, but um, hmm. there, there are challenges internally with billing and, and just workflow to to even submit the codes because they do have to be submitted under the PCP's name and, and there's some there's some logistics there. But but that I would say is is the beginning piece for the collaborative care model. Now e-consults mm-hmm. are also now reimbursable. Um, mm. So that's an, another option. I'm, I'm not sure on the primary care end if they are dropping those codes for, for reimbursement yet, but that is reimbursable as well. And then um, because we are using these behavioral health consultants, this actually then flows into other reimbursement for primary care that's outside the collaborative care model or even e-consults. And that's reimbursement for the primary care behavioral health model, which is kind of the underpinnings right. of the integration model in these clinics. And at Pacific Source, we have developed a value-based payment contractual arrangements with these clinics, as well as many others that we offer, that includes a PMPM or a per member per month reimbursement, as long as they hit certain okay. fidelity standards of PCBH integration. And now we've included language that also provides credit for involving a collaborative care model. So they could technically use some of that PMPM reimbursement and put that towards the collaborative care funding as well. Wow. Okay. So really a multifaceted approach, if I could try to put it together. So kind of maybe more foundationally, there's this value-based per member per month kind of payment structure that might be able to support some of the infrastructure, but then even for, you know, individual kind of patients um, that are being assisted, um, you know, you've kind of ensured that the collaborative care codes are reimbursed kind of across, you know, different, um, uh, payment structures, and so whether it's Medicare, well, obviously most of our kids aren't going to be in that. Right. But you know, in in, in these other plan types, um, you'll your your plan will kind of reimburse uh, those as well. So that sort of provides the kind of the the volume aspect of it as well. That's correct, and yeah, you're mm. right. By and large, these are, are Medicaid and commercial um, right, patients, right. in a fair mix of both types. And one thing I am proud of uh, with Pacific Source, we were able um, to get collaborative care paid for without any um, what we call member cost share. So, uh, no deductible or copay is involved with uh, reimbursement of the collaborative care codes, which really makes it much more feasible, especially on the commercial side. Medicaid, you don't right. we don't have copays in Oregon, but for commercial working families, you know, co-pays for this model of treatment or deductibles could really add up and, yeah. and create barriers to the care. So we've been able to eliminate that. You know, Mike, along these lines, I, I'm just going a little bit on a tangent here, but we've we run across a, a fair amount of challenge. So my in my integrated care program, um, you know, we're, we're still actually largely working through fee-for-service models, and we're just starting to kind of move into some value-based payment structures to New York State Medicaid. Um, but one of the biggest challenges we run up against outside of the New York State Medicaid for the commercial plans is we have other families with high deductible plans um, where, you know, they're really asked to kind of, you know, pay up front a, a very significant kind of chunk of the cost of their care, um, which, you know, maybe in the course of a year might seem somewhat reasonable. But, you know, and that point of service is, is very, very challenging. And just curious if you have any thoughts on that or if you've run up against any of those kinds of issues in your region. 
Um, yeah, we certainly we, we do. And, you know, even Pacific Source offers those kind of plans as well. And I know mm-hmm. that that can be a tremendous barrier to families uh, just to be able to come up with those dollars on the front end. And it can, you know, disincentivize seeking care even in the first place. Right. I, I think there are, you know, product options that can be purchased. Of course, some families, I think, are compelled to purchase those products because those are the ones that are most affordable. Again, in this case, with the collaborative care model, um, fortunately, there's no cost share even for those high deductible plans from Pacific Source, but I know we're just one medium-sized payer. But but that's fascinating, though. That's that's an interesting way. And I'm just curious. I mean, any thought now to ask you to put your, you know, um, your medical director hat on, any thoughts on how and why you guys made that decision to eliminate the family cost share? Yeah, I, you know, I, um, I guess I, I, I champion the notion, and I think it's it's uh, backed by some good research that there's a real opportunity for total cost of care offsets by um, getting uh, behavioral health assessments and uh, just as importantly, getting people connected to appropriate behavioral health treatment that's effective. And if you manage those behavioral health conditions that often really drive chronic medical conditions, and I appreciate Mm -hmm. I'm mostly talking about an adult population here, but but that really drive those um, chronic medical conditions, uh, you get a handle on those behavioral health conditions, you can decrease those medical costs, and those by far are what drive total health care costs. So the idea here is you invest in a good behavioral health assessment and treatment model, which in this case is an integrated model. And by doing so, that investment is going to pay dividends by decreasing your total cost of care and more than pay for itself. So you want to d- decrease those barriers to get into care, get assessed, get treated appropriately, get better, and don't end up in the emergency department or on the med surge unit for your chronic medical condition. Wow, I mean, Mike, I gotta be honest with you, that's a, it's a really enlightened approach, um, uh, perspective, I, I should say, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful that it that continues to become more and more uh, captivating to plans across the country. Um, I hope so, so too. <laughs> So, uh, so we, we took a little bit of a, a riff onto kind of thinking about some broader kind of policy things. I want to bring us back to um, your your collaborative care program. Um, talk to us a little bit about just a couple of things, one or two things that you're really proud of in your program. You know, areas where you feel like you've been able to innovate and sort of set yourself apart. Well, you know, I think um, I, I think I feel best about. Um, just providing access and services to kids and mm-hmm. families that otherwise would would never receive them. I mean, right. we know the prevalence of behavioral health conditions in the population of a whole is, well, it's just skyrocketing this year for all right. kinds of reasons. I think of course. In the general population, the CDC did a study, a survey uh, the last week of June that showed that combined about 40% of the entire population would meet criteria for either an SUD, a substance use disorder diagnosis, or a mental health diagnosis, 40%. I mean, mm. and that was at the end mm-hmm. of June, and there's been more that's happened since then. Right, right. Um, and, and you know, that that you know we can extrapolate that, and that extends to kids as well. And sure. we know even before this that, you know, maybe prevalence rates were 20 to 25% for kids, and a small fraction of those kids ever got assessed, let alone right. um, connected with effective treatment. Right. So I, I guess I feel best that we're really providing increased access and 
to the extent possible to treat mild and moderate conditions in a primary care medical setting, we're able to get those kids and families effective treatment um, by providing some consultation and being part of the primary care team, uh, leveraging a scarce resource um, and uh, keeping them from having to get referred out to a specialty behavioral health program. Not because that's not appropriate and needed in some cases, but sure. data suggests that you know 25 to 30 percent of of people who are referred from primary care to special behavioral health um, show up for that first appointment, and you know right. 70 to 75 percent don't. So by just avoiding that, let alone getting assessments and psychometrics and um, consultation about uh, appropriate treatments, yeah, I think we're really I think we're really moving uh, the dial. Absolutely. You know, that idea of, you know, having, you know, those couple tens of thousands of kids' lives and, you know, you're making sure that, you know, those families have access to, you know, appropriate kind of quality um, mental health assessment treatment as they need it. That's that's awesome. And so let's say if you're thinking about areas that you're hoping to improve upon and grow for your program in the next few years, what's on your list? Sure. Um data, outcomes, um, mm. you know, we've made some attempts at some pretty basic follow-ups, some surveys with the primary care providers about satisfaction, and, and those have been very favorable, and we have some, some I think, rudimentary data that might suggest we have been able to decrease uh, referrals, which was part of the intention of this when I collaborated initially with the medical director of the county behavioral health program at the time. Sure. Um, uh, but I think, you know, really looking at outcomes, you know, I say, I, I think we're making a difference. I'm pretty confident we are. We get a lot of qualitative feedback from that regard, but getting more sophisticated with registry review, are, uh -huh. are we really decreasing, you know, one way would be, are we, are we doing a good job of de decreasing psychometric scores or improving psychometric scores? Um, and we've done a few reviews of that and it appears that's the case, but I think we, we could do better. The problem is the resources. The clinics are already strapped with just they the are. workflow for this model right. to begin with. Right. So who's going to do that? I I wish I could. I, I don't have the expertise or the time. Sure. Um, there might be some grants. Eventually, we might have some infrastructure within the health plan uh, to mm -hmm. do this. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that that will happen. But I think really moving towards uh, better data and outcomes um, uh, would be a goal. Absolutely. I think for so many of us out there that are doing this work, we're, we're trying to kind of put our, you know, kind of nose to the wheel and just really kind of, you know, again, work on increasing access, those kinds of things. But, um, you know, to be able to really have some sense of downstream what the impact is, what the outcomes are, um, I think that, that could be really a game changer. Um, so kind of last question in focusing in on kind of your clinical work in integrated care. Let's say, you know, and I'm sure this probably happens, you know, you're talking to, you know, a fresh, you know, child psych grad or, you know, someone that's just getting ready to go out looking for jobs that's thinking of getting started in integrated care. I'm just wondering what kind of advice you might have for them, you know, to try to be successful. Um, yeah, I think it's a great question. And it certainly is not something uh, we all got a lot of training in when, right. when I started. <laughs> out. Um, I guess I was fortunate enough. I think I probably got interested in this 
you know, back in med school, I was one of those people that thought about, well, you know, am I going to do an internal medicine psychiatry combined residency? I, I ultimately uh-huh. decided uh, I, I don't think I'm going to bite that off. But I, I <laughs> did do a primary care um, track in my psychiatry residency where I was the PCP and the psychiatrist for my cohort of patients. And oh, I think that's where I really got turned on to the notion of sure. integration. Um, looking back, it's kind of amazing that I, I fulfilled that role for two years, but I did, and I, and I learned a lot from it. Um, I and I think, you know, I think residencies now, my understanding is they, they do have some more integrated tracks or opportunities, mm-hmm. but I would mm-hmm. seek those out. I would spend as much time as possible in general medical settings, mm-hmm. working with our medical colleagues, whether it be in primary care, but also on med surge units. ICUs, NICUs, um, even posted care units and emergency departments, as well as specially outpatient medical clinics like women's yes. health clinics, cardiology, Absolutely. Um, oncology. These are all opportunities and specific places where we really need to be moving towards an integrated clinical model. And mm-hmm. um, you know, we focus a lot on primary care, we have in this conversation, but all of those specialty settings and tertiary settings are also opportunities. So I would encourage um, uh, child psychiatrist trainees to seek out those opportunities, become part of those teams, really not just co-located, but really part of those medical teams mm-hmm. and um, practice these models in training with supervision and be positioned to fulfill these um, roles when they graduate. Because if we do that collectively as a child psychiatry profession, I really think we can solve a lot of the very con- uh, concerning access problems that are presented to us now nationally. It's not going to be a complete panacea, but right. I really think we are going to we could get a lot more families, the assessments and the effective treatments they need if we go in that direction. Absolutely. You know, I, I think one of the things that's, that's become more apparent for those of us that are, you know, integrated in these, you know, different medical settings, you know, you know, you develop relationships with, you know, the primary care docs, with the specialists, subspecialists, but over time, you know, even just by the, the shared back and forth on, on cases, you know, you end up learning a lot from them, but they learn a lot from you as well, you know, if, you know, every, I mean, almost every case, uh, you know, that's an MDD kind of case, you know, you have a similar sort of approach and you're, you know, kind of trying, you know, the, the general sort of evidence-based practices. Over time, you, you do begin to see them kind of pick those up. And that idea of, you know, improving access is certainly access to you, but it's also improving their abilities as well. For sure. Yeah, I, I think there's upskilling that goes on uh, bi-directionally, right? Oh, I, I mean, love that word, of, yes. <laughs> part of the model is is to to help our medical colleagues learn more and, and need us less. And I, I definitely see that happen. I guess that's another satisfying piece of my work. But but also, you know, I, I'm a physician first and foremost, and it, you right. know, it keeps me abreast of the medical issues and the comorbidities and just the true sense that, you know, the mind is connected to the body. And, and I appreciate that part, too. Join us for part two of our podcast with Dr. Mike Franz as we focus in on pediatric integrated care from an insurer's perspective.